Hello, everyone. You are listening to our Future Past, the early music podcast. This series is produced by REMA, the European Early Music Network. I am Yasmina Cernčić, and this episode is dedicated to the challenges of building a sustainable career for performers today in the early music field. Today, you will hear the stories of several performers and promoters from various origins and backgrounds, their views on what having a career in early music means to them and how they built theirs. I warn you that some of them have very strong opinions, which is actually why we invited them to speak to you. We start with Jonathan Cohen, the cellist and founder of Ensemble Arcangelo, based in London. Jonathan was trained in Manchester's Royal Northern College of Music and polished his academic training in Clare College, Cambridge. And that's how the story starts. I'm Jonathan Cohen and I'm a musician. I'm a conductor and a keyboardist and cellist. And I conduct an orchestra called Arcangelo, which is an orchestra I founded. And I'm also music director of Les Villains du Roi, which is an orchestra in Quebec City in Canada. And I started doing, well, goodness, I can't really say when I, when I started being a music director, let's say, but I, I've been in music and early music maybe for about 20 years. So since I left university, I suppose I followed a, a career, first of all, as a cellist, and then that developed into other, into other things. When you first started, if you can think back, to those times when you first started coming out of the university, um, embarking on a professional road. Um, how did that look for you? Did you have any kind of support from an outside university organization or were you kind of left stranded completely on your own? Like what, what was the process? I never decided to have a career in music. It was rather strange. I remember when I, I was at uh, Cambridge University studying music and I'd never really even occurred to me that we could have a job, let's say, in those things. So I just used to do lots of music, especially at, uh, at university. We used to put things together, concerts, just for fun, really. I used to go to, to Prussia Cove, and it was there that I played in a trio with a violinist who was the leader of a London orchestra. And it's as I was coming to a close of my studies in Cambridge. And he said, what are you going to do after, after university? I said, well, I, I don't really know. And he said, well, there's a job in my orchestra. Why don't you apply? I had never really thought of that. So anyway, I did the audition. Um, this was the Philharmonia Orchestra in London. And then I decided to, to also apply for a job in some of the early music orchestras, like the Age of Enlightenment Orchestra. So primarily as a cellist, I was lucky to go into that. But it had never been a goal and it never never really thought of doing music as a career it was more like what do I do now and then I was lucky to receive some some advice and an invitation for an audition from someone already in the profession and also at Cambridge by the way there's a lot of experimentation into early music you know I had the harpsichord of the college in my room and we were putting things together so it was you know someone said oh I think they're looking for for cellists that play gut strings so I got into that. I got myself some gut strings and I went for an audition and I, I played, got invited to then play in the, the King's Consort for a bit. So I sort of jumped sideways from playing in a symphony orchestra to then deciding, oh, well, it'd be quite nice to, to 
do some early music. And for a time I did both actually. And then I jumped more into the early music. And then eventually you started your own orchestra. How are you now still as an active performer, but also as an artistic director? How do these two work together? Because these are like two different profiles of thinking, of acting, of being. Now I'm uh, playing the cello in the Age of Enlightenment Orchestra. And they have a residency in Glyndebourne, which is an opera house, doing Handel operas and a lot of early music. And that's where I met William Christie. William Christie was conducting some performances and I got to know him. And he was looking for an, for an assistant, an assistant conductor. He invited me to come to Paris as his, you know, to do a trial, let's say. And I, then I gave up pretty much, well, I didn't give up, but I stopped playing the cello because I ended up being his assistant. And that's where I learned really to be conductor. After about five years of doing that, I started to do my own things. That's when I set up Archangelo. There are profiles of musicians who let's say, are instrumentalists first, and then they grow into conductors or they're exposed to an environment where this kind of, you know, comes out of your own playing, but to have um, being, you know, a string player and a keyboard player, but both of those at a, at a professional level, this, I think, is a much rarer combination. The whole thing about being a silent conductor with a stick is very foreign to anything really before late Beethoven. So it, music would always have been led from, from an instrument, from the violin, from the keyboard are the easiest ones I suppose to lead from, or from the voice singers. And it's much more, um, much more a collaborative enterprise. The best way to mentor young people is to give them opportunities to, to play together with the more experienced people. I really think that's what learning is. I wouldn't say there's secrets of the, there's no kind of hidden secret code and then you get a secret handshake and then suddenly you know how to do things. You just got to be able to do it. And so we, we have to take the most talented, uh, capable people at the beginning of their careers and give them opportunities to work in a um, developed situation. I think that's the best way to, to foster learning. Many early music performers fell into their professional lives just like Jonathan Cohen did, through hard work and good encounters. Or maybe that is what they want us to believe? Now, this may have been more common a few years back, but most performers today get a complimentary training on how to become a professional outside of the usual essential conservatoire training that focuses on training outstanding artists and researchers. One of the most prominent career-developing programs in early music is Emerging, through which ensembles like Solazzo, Cantoria or Palisander have earned their place in the early music scene. Here is a presentation by its founder, Daniel Bizeret, the current director of the Centre Culturel de Rencontre d'Ambronay. I am Daniel Bizeret. I'm the director of the Centre Culturel de Rencontre d'Ambronay. Can you present uh, shortly what the emerging project is? Well, we realized already um, many years ago that the ensembles had, uh, in fact, uh, a lot of difficulties to form themselves, to rehearse together and to be taught what they should know, because this is not the role of the conservatories. For example, they don't learn in, uh, during their studies communication, administration, 
dissemination, low fundraising, and they don't very often have space and time to rehearse together, especially as they are very often coming from different countries. It's a major difficult place for them. So we, we decided to build a program in order to help them to, well, to do their job as an ensemble. So we are spotting them, then we choose them, we support them with different uh, trainings, and we accompany them in their professional way, even by, for example, making uh, their first record in the Ambronnet uh, edition. What we receive from this ensemble is that the most important thing is that they have a place. Then we give them some trainings, which are artistic trainings, according to what they need. It can be, of course, it's very different if it's medieval music or if it's classical music, if they are interfering with some other art, such as dance or plastic arts, or I don't know, I don't know what. And as well as uh, something quite interesting, which is uh, health practices, such as gesture and posture, very useful for the violinist, prevent from uh, hearing loss, which is quite common for musicians, especially those who are playing in, in a pit. We are giving them trainings as well uh, as for stress management, and as well as nutrition. And I must say, I'm in charge of this nutrition training, which is my hobby. It's a quite a professional hobby now. From when, when did it first start emerging? Well, emerging first started in 2014. It was held during four years by Creative Europe, the European Union, and we had 10 ensembles in the field of early music, could be medieval, uh, Renaissance, Baroque, uh, classical, or even early romantic music ensemble. They are uh, from three to nine members, and there are age conditions, because they are young ensembles with young musicians. We add them with a maximum of three years, as long as necessary we uh, remarked that after this moment, there is quite a, a gap between all the possibilities they have in the emerging program and what happens uh, afterwards. So we, we have now a, a career support program to help them during the one, two, three uh, following uh, years. And uh, each of us is a mentor of uh, an ensemble. We have decided as well that it was very important for the ensembles to meet other ensembles and they have some possibilities. For example, shared residences. We have innovation labs with three themes. One is audience lab. It's to, to help the ensemble to work with all this kind of audience. A second one is a performance lab. They have to speak to audience. They have to, to have a, a very interesting program, a different program according to different uh, audience. And the, the, the third one is Tech Lab, investing on uh, distant working was so important. The third different point with the emerging program now with uh, this new emerging plus program is that we, we are working on the community life. 
really to involve more, not only professional musicians and not only from the early music sector, but all musicians, including uh, amateur musicians. Of course, it's not uh, uh, all day work and all year long work, but um, really there, there are many moments in between. And it, it may not involve the, all the members of the ensemble, for example. Uh, so one will be more uh, interested and able for communication, another one with uh, the artistic dimension of the ensemble, and uh, a third one with the dissemination of their work. So um, it's really, and it's really adapted to each ensemble. We are focusing on the lacks of the, of the ensemble, of course. Has your criteria for choosing repertoires uh, or choosing ensembles evolved over the years? We are more and more aware of all these conditions. And sometimes uh, we say, well, a, a very strong motivation could be one of the most important criteria. Thank you very much, Daniel, for these recommendations. Emerging has been fostering young ensembles for a few years now, providing them with knowledge that they didn't receive during their music school years at a very stressful moment in a person's career and individual life. But what is the payback for the ensembles at such a critical stage at the beginning of their career? We thought we'd ask directly one of the first ensembles to be accompanied when the program began, Seconda Pratica, represented by Jonathan Alvarado and Nuno Atalaya. I'm Jonathan Alvarado and I'm a guitar player and a singer and a researcher from Argentina, living here in the Netherlands already for, I think, eight, nine years. And I'm the musical director of Seconda Pratica Ensemble. And I am Nuno. I'm a singer, flutist, researcher and, and an university teacher. I am the artistic director of the Ensemble Seconda Pratica and I come from Portugal. Well, we started out of necessity, basically, because Nuno had booked a concert in a Maison de Cartes here in, in Amsterdam. And we were supposed to do a concert there for a reception uh, and a conference around Rousseau. And he booked certain musicians from his conservatory because he used to study in, in The Hague. But uh, one week before, they all cancelled at the same time, which was a very strange... <laughs> they, received, they received an offer for a, a concert... And of course, that is the so the reality of a freelance life sort of indirectly made Seconda be born. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I asked musicians from, from the conservatorium in Amsterdam because I was studying in Amsterdam. I was still not at the early music department there. So I just went to the early music department and started asking people that I didn't even know. Uh, <laughs> and we ended up with this group of nine Uh, people that has been exactly the same since except for the harpsichord player because he moved back to spain but then we got another spanish <laughs> harpsichord player and yeah that's that's how we started out yes. of this uh, random assortissement of, of yeah, we had <laughs> of we had luck because the the concert was a success people were very happy but we also were lucky because this reception included a wine and cheese tasting in the sort of beautiful french gardens of the maison descartes in the middle of amsterdam and it was one of those rare days in the Netherlands where it's summer and the experience was so good and there was <laughs> many people had left but the wine was still there so we kept drinking and and the experience was so good that it was like this communal feeling of 
oh, we, we need to keep doing this. The, yeah. This is this needs to keep going. And that was basically the, the birth of the of the ensemble. I think this idea of, of a, a modern voice uh, for memory, I would say. So that questions of history are very important, but since the beginning, our interest at that time, it was not yet formulated at the beginning, but there was this idea that it's not just that you need to make actual the past so that an audience can enjoy it, but there's this idea that within the audience, there are parts which are receptive and sensible and emotionally sensible to the historic aspect. And what we need to find is the context, create the context as artists where that can be shared, this sort of common memory. It is a good lesson that you can build a sustainable ensemble out of good cheese, wine, good weather and sheer luck. Now, what about emerging? How did you join? Emerging was, was an important experience because we were working uh, before that only for one year. So we decided to focus on, on, on our heritage. We started to, to research a little bit more. We had some experience with it before, but then we decided to really put a program on the what what people kept keep on calling the new world uh, and then we we got we got in uh, with that program it was a very interesting project for them and they support us until the very end so we are the first together with uh, Boche Suaves we are the first uh, two groups to finish the whole the whole program and record the CD it was a really important experience in a sense that we got a sense of how the market works and we got the opportunity to to really network with with people that we couldn't have had access before. We're also looking at the members of the ensemble. We were all in in a crucial moments of our of our professional careers, deciding what did we want to do, uh, did we want to go fully into just music performance. Uh, personally, there was also this question how to bring the academic and the and the the artistic together. And I think that's actually a concern that that other members of the ensemble, yeah. Emilio as well, there were very multifaceted interests in the members, and that made the ensemble also a bit multifaceted. So, when you are in a young ensemble setting, it's very competitive. It's highly competitive. What happens in, within the merging? which is how things are in, in the world in general, you know, in, in highly efficient and, and, and very famous programs. We started emerging and it was something that it was kind of like, yeah, it's, it's a nice opportunity, it's a nice project, but then it started growing and people started hearing about it. And it became this necessity of keep on producing all the time, producing, producing, producing. Or, and and at, the, at a certain point we felt like we were in the pose, kind of like pretending that we were producing, even though we couldn't really produce something of interest. Every program of Seconda took one year and a half to be made. So there was this moment when we were trying to put all this information out there and, and it was not really working for us. So that's the moment when we decided, okay, let's just stop for, for one year, recalculate. As early music became an industry, uh, certain ideals of industry, which are continuous production, quick production, uh, visibility. Putting out, visibility, putting out things, uh, somewhat constantly, and also the sort of cost reduction, which which was a reality, especially the ensemble. We are the children of the 2008 recession. And, and we are nine. It's a big we're, ensemble. We are nine. So all of that, 
um, made us feel as though we were pretending that we were doing things which were not entirely... We were at the same time sh showing a lot, but at the same time, this sort of showing a lot was sort of hiding just the reality that we were still trying to sort things out. Mm. When you offer a portfolio, before you are known, before you have a name, uh, you have to give them at least five, six programs for them to choose. And because we want to deal with music that is not that known or, or and we do archival work, you know, we try to go to the, to the places and see the manuscripts and edit our music ourselves. It's, it's just not feasible. It's not sustainable for an ensemble of our characteristics and our interests. Each festival we would write to would ask us, actually, could you make a program for this topic? And so at the certain... And we did. And we did. <laughs> we have a, a dossier of about 25 programs of which three of them, four of them were, were actually, actually played. played. But we did all these sorts of programs and we were thinking, this is not sustainable. So very early you have faced and understood the issues that you would have to deal with as an ensemble or even as individual performers. And I think it is a blessing to be able or to be forced to ask yourself this question. How has this shaped the career plan that you developed for Seconda Pratica? How did you adapt? Well, basically, we had been limiting our the, the, the activity of Seconda to two or three big projects every year, two or three big happenings. So we also give the time to the rest of the members to do what they're doing because it's all great. I mean, it is this sort of since we do have a more limited, since we do not try to make Seconda our living, but rather a life project. Mm these sort of crises that happen they have an effect of course so the the recording uh, that we were planning for this year for to celebrate Roscan year next year of course it's put into question yeah it has now we have to move it I mean, we have to adapt it and now it will be here in the netherlands instead of in france so we don't need to travel that much and but we still don't know what's going to happen but at least there's no the whole project doesn't really go through the fact you don't really need the recording in itself yeah I don't know how to explain, but it's, it's like if it's the, the project will not fall, even if the circumstances change. change. And that's something that you're allowed to do while you're having your own life and you're having your own interests and you're pursuing what you want to do. And then Seconda, it's really a place when we all come together really as a family to enjoy it and to have like a most amazing time and still travel a lot and still do concerts, but in a very specific <laughs> period of time. Without emerging, we could not have experienced it. So it would remain on the abstract. It would so have been impossible because the possibility of experiencing that and of seeing a bit how that worked and 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 feeling it in the flesh. So not saying I sat down and I imagined how it would be and then I took the decision. No, we we tried to do it. We were doing it. Yeah. Um, but it was just not um, fitting the profile of the ensemble and of the elements of the ensemble. It was so, so fast for us, three years of constant exposure. What do we do now? And, and that's what we decided, just to, to keep it as a passion project and not as a machine. What was very interesting was to see that when you're there within this sort of thing and you're just babies in a way, uh, artistically speaking, you all come with the same idea of what you want to achieve. And as years passed, we noticed that different groups, different elements, different projects 
some of them either uh, sort of break apart into smaller projects, some of them explode and release ha gain a seat within the within the mainstream. So like one of those cases where really there was a sort of positioning themselves. But what's very interesting was to see the variety of different solutions that exist and that this variety is something of great value, even though it's not so apparent, the variety yeah. of different solutions that artists found to have a, a sustainable relationship between a performance career as an ensemble and a path as individual lives. It's very interesting. And I think that will have an overreaching effect, which will take still a few years to really be felt. Here is one effect of a program such as Emerging that is very unexpected. It gives ensembles practical tools to use in their professional course or career, but it also gives them a glimpse of what challenges may come later so that they can decide on a strategy, to use another corporate word. For example, what Jonathan Alvarado and Nuno Atalaya shared concerning the necessity of preparing dozens of programs that will never be actually played echoes perfectly what the keyboard player Catalina Vicens told me in a previous interview where we discussed the challenges of defending a sustainable work life for performers. It's one of the issues that I think needs further discussion to really understand how much of a sometimes themes preparation of the concert organizer uh, do really affect the amount of numbers or the interest of the audience because often the investment of the musicians themselves in trying to create a program that only will fit within this one specific concert series makes their work actually not really sustainable. <laughs> but trying to find meaning and trying to bring the best out of this beautiful exploration of a subject, of a style, of a period of a composer and that's sometimes trying just to do a poopoo of of old programs will never have I think the same meaning for the performer. I'm being required to do something new almost every time and so that's one of the biggest challenges I think in my way of working as a freelance musician. Uh, that it involves a lot of uh, concert programming, um, a lot of research, a lot of new practice time devoted to learning new repertoire. Yeah, so there's lots of material, so to say, to uh, offer already, but almost every month at least there's three new programs that I have to bring in. Yeah. I tried for some years to uh, try to sell, so to say, to these concert organizers that were interested, already made programs, and most of them decide, no, we want something completely new. Freelancing demands lots of availability and flexibility, and many of the other sources of income demand stability. With Servir Antico, for example, I do all the programming, and this is often I have to plan on several months of research. 
In other ensembles, it's much more of a collaborative process. Sometimes one person takes the lead in programming, but often it's exchange of what do we want as a group. Sometimes it's based on, on the instruments that give us the delimitation or the voices um, on the subject, on the concept of the group. It's a huge financial effort, a huge financial investment to do something like this. So I've, I've felt very limited in this, uh, in this regard because I also don't want to compromise too much with my projects. I really don't want to fit in a mold or do something that would look available commercial or easily to, to sell out there. I just want my idea to come through. We still, the industry of music requires for the professional musician to have a recording catalogue. Uh, for an ensemble to be really out there, it's sort of demanded uh, that you produce. And the amount of concerts, the amount of fee honorariums that people are getting are not corresponding with the production costs of a CD, which are very high, but they are real. They, they are costs that often cannot be reduced. As Catalina Vicens points out, Performers and ensembles have to be competitive, just like any business. And in the music industry, being competitive means always being able to supply new programs. I am confident that there is no lack of material in early music, but this demand for original programs makes it difficult for a performer making a living out of the time spent performing on stage, while the production costs, researching and rehearsing, are mostly unpaid. I have been using a lot of business words here, such as career, competitivity, supply and demand, costs, music industry, which you may not be comfortable using as related to early music. But we do have to ask ourselves why culture should be an exception where trained, certified professionals work for free and cannot make a living. Once you realize that you are on a market under a lot of pressure, how do you redefine your own professional goals to make them sustainable? Our last interview today is with harpsichordist Skip Sempe. Just like Catalina Vicens, he comes from overseas and has developed his life as a performer and ensemble director in Europe. But he is also in a more advanced stage of his career and can take a look back on his choices and the support he has been given and compare them to today's options for newcomers. America is too big, there are too many airports, and there's not enough interest, and there were no record companies. So I came to Europe in June of uh, uh, 1980 in order to stay here for the rest of my life, live in Paris, uh, and, and get whatever done I could do as far as concerts and recording and having my own ensemble, which I never dreamed would be an orchestra or a choir. It was impossible to be a young talent in early music. That just was not possible. No one would take you seriously if you were 18 or 20 or 22 or 26 or 28 or 30. For harpsichord playing, in the post Leonhardt way of harpsichord playing, there was only Pierre Montaille. Question is who is running it at this point? 
I think that young people who are attempting to have a career, that's to say people who really don't have a career yet in uh, the field of medieval Renaissance or, or Baroque music in France, whether they want to be conductors or harpsichordists or viol players or ensemble singers or, or do chamber music, I think that the roads, the pathways that are available to them really need much, much clearer definition. The pathways of having a career are not what the traditional pathways used to be because there are too many people. It's time that we uh, really, it's time that people of a certain age and of certain responsibility admit that there are too many people in the profession of medieval Renaissance and Baroque music. In Europe and all over the world, there are not enough, there is not enough public, even with the internet, there are not enough record companies, there are not enough music publishers to get the word of everyone out. In the past, you couldn't get your word out. What about the evolution of the recording situation? There seem to be many digital opportunities today. What was the situation when you started? In the past, you couldn't get your word out unless you recorded for an extremely famous record label. There are no longer uh, record companies of great finesse, shall we say, the way it always existed before, before the 21st century. Everything is on license. Musicians are not being paid for anything. This is something which, which musicians have been complaining about also since the beginning of time, possibly, but even more and more in the last 30 or 40 years. And now, if one makes a recording in the last 10 years, one has been trained to not be expected to be paid for a recording. In the 60s and 70s, Leonhardt and Haunoncourt and Bruggen, on their record contracts with uh, what is now Teldec, made fortunes making a recording. They would have never made a recording if it were not for the money that they earned from making the recordings. And I think that this training, it, it, one has to decide when one is doing a certain amount of volunteer work that goes unnoticed, one has to decide at some point that one absolutely must be paid for a certain number of things that one does as a professional musician. I haven't been paid for uh, a recording that I have made uh, in the last 15 years, but that's also the result of having one's own label. Making a career, beginning to attract the idea of, of various concert organizers in various territories, or to interest uh, a record company or an agent, was something which was extremely difficult. It was extremely difficult to break into because you aren't expected to be a part of it unless you were over 30 or even over 40. I'm not sure that there's an early music police at the moment. I think it's an interesting concept, but I think that the early music police and the, this idea that a person who is still young and who still wants to make a career doesn't know exactly what paths they should go down. They go down the paths of a certain now validated institutional validation. And that's the problem. The early music police is not an early music police anymore. It's a police that is actually deciding who is going to get somewhere and who is not.
you have a music magazine in France who will still put Maria Callas or Kathleen Ferrier mm. or Herbert von Karajan on the cover of a magazine in an attempt to sell the magazine, to put greater sales on the magazine. Gramophone uh, and BBC Music Magazine would never, ever put a dead artist on the cover of one of their magazines because they don't have the culture des morts. So I understand that you feel that young artists are, in France at least, at the same time given a lot of means and very few opportunities. What would your advice be for them to defend their career and their way of life? It's difficult to give a prescribed path. A lot of my harpsichord students, a lot of my younger friends have asked me what they should do. And I tell most of them to leave France and seek their fame and their fortune elsewhere that no one wants to go to Brussels or Antwerp, but that's where all the European musicians should be living in order to, in order to, uh, to have a hundred square meters um, for 1200 euros a month, either alone or in a couple. For a young musician in, in early music at this point in Europe specifically, I think that the whole idea of fitting into a mold is now a dated and old and tired idea. It's just old wine in new bottles. There's really no way around it. The, the mold has to be changed into something which is less institutionalized and more personalized. Because if something is a institutionalized, you will never get new and different. You will only get new. And you will go, you will, you will go recklessly through people when they're young so that when they're 40, you can cut off the entire rest of their career. We've been talking a lot about the beginning of a career and the middle of it, but what about your situation as a more advanced performer now? One is supposed to retire from the early music field at 45 or 50 to make, uh, to make space for the 20-year-olds. I do understand the way it works, and I am not in agreement with it because I think it doesn't work. I think the fact that we have had 10 conductors in France that are complete carbon copies of William Christie, not, not only his musical behavior, but his personal behavior, I don't know how anybody could have ever thought that that was a good investment for the next generation of musicians. Well, the story doesn't end on a very happy note, but it does give an overview of what an artist's career can be from a carefree start to a look back at how everything has changed in the course of a few decades with all the revelations, economic crisis, chance encounters and decision-making that have happened in between. You may have noticed that this episode does not refer much to the performer's formal education as we will deal with these in a later episode and of course during our European Early Music Summit. This podcast series is a preparation for this upcoming summit that will take place in Beaux-Arts in November 2020. It will assess the state of early music today and take a critical look at its practices and evolution. The next podcast episodes will give you an overview of the topics that will be debated during this three-day conference. So stay tuned for more insight into the lives and ideas of your favorite performers, 
to know what they're up to these days and get to know in advance what you can expect for the next years of live or recorded music and exciting research projects. See you next Tuesday for more episodes and now I'll let you enjoy the music of Seconda Pratica. Yeah,